This is a Flashpoint Extra. I'm Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. Hey, everybody. I had the pleasure of getting a copy of a brand new book published this year. It's called Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. If you've never heard of it, it's a previously unpublished work by the one and only novelist, sociologist, anthropologist, folklorist, Zora Neale Hurston. Now, you probably know her. You had to read her book. It was a required reading in college. She wrote, Their Eyes Are Watching God. Well, the backstory is that in 1927, when Hurston was a college student, she interviewed Adewale Kasala. His American name was Cujo Lewis. He was 86 years old at the time and was one of the last remaining survivors of the Atlantic slave trade. Now, you're probably wondering, how in the world was he a survivor? Most people at that point had been born into servitude in the United States. But let me explain. Now, Lewis had been kidnapped from West Africa and brought illegally to the United States and enslaved 50 years after the slave trade had been outlawed. Hurston, who died in 1960, never got to see her manuscript or her written a draft of this book published, but it finally made it to light this past April, and it's currently on bookshelves. Now, the work is written in uh, Cujo Lewis's own words and dialect, and I got to speak with Deborah Plant. She's the editor of this wonderfully enlightening work. We discussed the importance of this story, and uh, Deborah will be in Philadelphia on July 31st. You can listen to this Flashpoint Extra. Flashpoint airs Saturday nights at 9.30, Sunday mornings at 8.30s, and new extras are made available every single week. So tune, listen in to my interview with Deborah Plant. You are the editor of Barracoon, the, last, the story of The Last Black Cargo. And for folks who have not had the opportunity to know about this story, please explain to our listeners what it's about and what, what drew you to this previously unpublished work. Barracoon is about the lived experiences of Oluwale Kosala, who is an African of Yoruba culture, Isha Yoruba, born around 1841. And it's about his story of being captured in West Africa, the time he spent in the barracoons while waiting for ships like the Clotilda to come to basically bargain for him as well as the others in the barracoon and his transportation across the Atlantic and his forced condition of servitude in America in the peculiar institution called slavery here in Alabama. And so the barracoon covers that and, and so much more. This is the publication of a formerly unpublished manuscript of Zorna Hurston and it actually is her first book-length work, and she, like I say, completed that in 1931, but found no publisher for it. And subsequently, you know, now we have this published, and and so we get to see not only Hurston as the wonderful writer that she is, but also we see more into Hurston as the social scientist, the cultural anthropologist, the ethnographer and folklorist who just very brilliantly collected and presented this story to us in what we have now as Barracoon. Yeah. And, you know, you've written extensively about Zora Neale Hurston 
And what I was interested, because I'm a journalist, and mm-hmm. in a way she was acting as a journalist, a documentarian, an anthropologist in this work. And, you know, because she actually told the story in his words, in his dialect, in many ways. Explain why the act of doing that was so important. Well, because there's so much in language, and, and our language says so much about us. Uh, and and with Kosala, he's he's speaking in a black vernacular, a dialect that you know that evolved in his community in Africatown in Plateau, Alabama. But you know, there's there's so much to the issue of language. As an ethnographer, person knows that the language is this authenticating feature of not only the the portrait, the personality of the informant, in this case, Kosala, but also it it speaks to the greater culture uh, that he comes from. And the fact that he is speaking in this dialect, and we call it a dialect, all language, you know, any language that you speak is a dialect uh, within that larger language system. And, but what's very important about this uh, language that he's speaking is that it's not his his original language. This is not his his mother tongue. Um, Kosala's language, his first language, his mother tongue, was some variation of Yoruba. He was an Isha Yoruba, and by age nineteen, we know that that's the language he's speaking. He's not speaking some vernacular that you know came into being in Alabama. So the question becomes, what is the history? Behind even that, you know, why is it that this man who was speaking his mother tongue of some variation of Yoruba, why is it that now when he speaks to us, he's speaking this vernacular? Yeah. And so as we understand about Creoles, about Atlantic Creoles, this language is a language that that comes to us by virtue of violence. It comes to us by virtue of one group attempting to subjugate another group. It comes to us by virtue of this dominating group wanting to basically silence, steal the tongue, the ability to express oneself from this other group. And then the other side of that is the resistance to that. Because even though Kosala finds himself in a whole nother, other linguistic terrain, he and his compatriots, they find a way to continue to communicate, to express themselves, to be heard. One of the things you know, in, in, in his in his narrative, he, he says consistently or asks, you understand me? Yeah, you know, because he's trying, that, yeah. he's trying to tell you something about who he is, where he's from, his experiences, and what happened to him, what created the grief in him that is so, so palpable. And so in spite of the hostilities that he experienced and he lived in, in spite of that, yeah. he's still able to be expressive. And this is so important because language is a part of who we are as human beings. We are not just social beings. We are also linguistic beings. Yeah. And he refused to not be. Yeah, and, and, and his name, Kosala, was his given name from uh, his homeland. And then uh, his American name was Cujo Lewis, which was another way of mm-hmm. uh, removing his identity and, and dehumanizing him. And and you think about this, this story to me was very important because there was not a lot of, of stories 
from the, you know, from the vantage point of enslaved peoples. And it was done at a time when we had a better understanding um, of the impact um, of it. And so talk about the time frame to which Zora Neale Hurston befriended Kosala and and told and, and how she did that and was able to to get him to tell the story, which she said was wholly accurate and was was able to verify parts of his story through through the records. This is around 1927 when she initially goes into the field on behalf of Franz Boas and Carter G. Woodson to collect uh, Kosala's story, and and she gets she gets his story and more information from archives in the area, and she sends a report to Carter G. Woodson. But what she knows is, as a cultural anthropologist, she knows that there is there is more, and that there at this point in our history, they're not, with the exception of Kosala and, and, and maybe some few others uh, who had come over on the Clotilda that we don't know about, we wouldn't have those stories without his story. At least we wouldn't have insight into the other stories without his, because it, it is rare. It, we don't have that perspective in the narratives that we have in terms of uh, what's called slavery. And uh, in this category that we label as slave narratives and others now are are describing as uh, narratives of emancipation. And what we have in those narratives are stories of men and women who were born into the condition of servitude. With Kosala's narrative, we have the story of someone who was forced into that condition, someone who came from a condition of freedom and forced into a condition of non-freedom. And so so she goes down to collect the story on behalf of Carter G. Woodson and to some extent Franz Boyes, and she goes back later to have extensive interviews, which she does, and she, she gives herself to this process. As the cultural anthropologist that she was, just very astute, very wise. And that's important because Herson had... She hadn't even graduated from undergrad school when she went into the field to begin her work with, with, with Kosala. So I, I call her, everything that she did and how she did it was it's just sheer genius. She a hadn't received woman. her diploma. Yeah, as a young woman. Yes, and not even a graduate yet, you know, from, from undergraduate school. And, so, and she's in the field on her own. Yeah. And she does this kind of work. And it's just, it's just amazing. And so... She spends the time, and she has the wherewithal, the genius to know how to get his story, how to have him open up in the ways that he opened up to her. Because others had interviewed him, but no one had interviewed him in the way that, that Herson did and to the extent that she did and captured so much about him in the way that she did. Being not only a social scientist, but being a sympathetic human being respecting his moods, respecting his silences, respecting his humanity. And she would go back again and again, you know, bearing gifts sometimes and being run off sometimes, and, but, but coming back again and again to, to really be this, this listening space for him to unburden himself, yeah. uh, express himself. Do you think he knew and understood the necessity and the value that his story brought to 
the historical landscape of America and of the world? I don't know that he imagined what's going on now, but certainly he knew he had to, on some level, know the importance because reporters were always coming, you know, to him, looking for him. And, and there are several, several interviews with him. And so he, he has some sense of his importance, and he experienced some celebrity as someone who was one of the last Africans to uh, have come over through the Middle Passage. But one of the things that was really important to him and why he kept telling his story was because he wanted the people in Africa to, at some point, to in some way, to know where he was. He never stopped longing for Africa. He never stopped longing for his people. He never lost sight of them. And he he couldn't go back. They learned that they couldn't go back, how expensive that was, and that wasn't going to be their reality. But the longing to be there, the longing to let people know where he was, his connectivity. And this speaks to his, his very deep sense of identity as a Yoruba slash yeah. African, right? And and it's like, you know, these are the questions that all of us get to at some point in our, in our lives. Who am I and where do I belong? We can see where he believed he belonged, and that was in his homeland. And that was beautiful, and that preserves his humanity. And I want to, you know, I know we only have a couple more minutes, but I do want to ask, because it must have been, I mean, you edited this book. What changes do you make? And I know with editors, restraint is very important, and it seemed like it just flowed. Um, but as editor, what was your role here? As the writer, the the person who documented Kosla's story, Zora Neale Hurston is barely visible in that narrative. And my job as editor was the same, <laughs> to be as absent from that narrative as possible. And that was actually not that difficult for me because the draft that that Hurston left was really good. (laughs) You know, it was a final draft that she was submitting to publishers, so it was in good shape. What I had to do was look at the various uh, versions of it because there were some chapters that were still where she had a handwritten version of, of those chapters. So I got to see where she started with her writing of that and look at uh, the typed versions of it and see how those compare. And just that kind of comparative analysis to be sure about yeah. what was intended, intended, what was error. Because, you know, she typed and retyped the, these manuscripts. It's not like today on a computer. You yeah. can, when you change something, everything else stays the same. When you're typing, you're retyping everything. So you can that, insert errors yes. in there. Yeah. So I had to look and check for all of those kinds of things. And so, but the changes, corrections, uh, typos, errors of that come from by virtue of her retyping uh, the manuscript, those kinds of things I had to look out for. Passages that didn't quite get to the, the type uh, script, but were in the handwritten version, all of that putting all of that together to make a definitive manuscript, that that was my process. And my last question, as we wrap this uh, interview up, I want to talk about, you mentioned that, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, brilliant writer. This was a young, the early part of her career. This, Mm -hmm. she could not get a publisher for this. 
why now do you think people are more open to this type of history when, um, you know, at this point, and, and it was it difficult for you? I didn't get it published. I mean, I prepared it for publication, but the Zora Neale Hurston Trust, along with other scholars and uh, HarperCollins editors, they decided so they uh, wanted when, it when to publish that. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the process of publishing her unpublished works, because Hurston had a cache of mm. unpublished writings. Yeah, and like uh, um, every tongue got to confess, those were unpublished, and and the the process was let's reprint those works that were published during Hurston's lifetime, then let's look at the unpublished manuscripts, and then as those were were being basically scheduled for public publication, and and then it's just that okay, and and here is also the Barracoon manuscript, and. Yeah. Let's get that ready for publication. So it's it's a process of mm-hmm. from published to the unpublished works and uh those that were ready at a given point in time and what have you. And so when they were ready to have Barracoon be published, they asked if I would consider uh editing the manuscript and prepare it for publication. And of so, course you said yes. Well, wholeheartedly. Of course. I mean, of course. They didn't even have to ask me. <laughs> they could have just said, we know she'll do it, and we'll just let her know that that's what's happening. And I would have been They say, okay would you? And you say, yes. <laughs> you, yes, like, I'll absolutely. Have to finish it. And my last question, I mean, like, it seems to me that Zora Neale Hurston was a woman far before her time, and now we've all caught up, or at least trying to catch up, <laughs> to what she knew. And, and, and any final words, because I know you're going to be in Philadelphia on the 31st of July. You'll be here Folks will be there to see you. Anything you're looking forward to in Philadelphia, which is one of the you know oldest cities in the, in the United States here. Well, you asked me a bunch of things right there. Yeah. Uh, so I'll begin with the last one, the last question. I, I'm looking forward to being there and, and sharing uh, conversations with, with people about Barracoon. And Philadelphia, I used to live in Philadelphia. And there are some people there that I know I'm looking forward to seeing them and Oh, I've been promised, you know, to to visit certain museums and things of that nature. So I'm looking forward to all of that. And, and Hurston, you know, we we think of her as a woman before her time, but it, in reality, she was born at the perfect time because it's, it's when I think of Hurston, I think of a lighthouse, yeah. and I think of the rest of us needing that light so we can be careful about, you know, the 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 boulders in the way and and which way to go and and that kind of thing. It's just, it's just, she's brilliant, so she shines, and 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 somebody's got to do that for us. Somebody's got to go up ahead, so that as we come, we can know the way. And so this is how how I see her, and I'm glad we'll be talking about her and Barracoon uh, in just a few days. Yes, well, so wonderful. So thank you so much to Deborah Plant. She's a scholar in English literature and Africana studies. She has written several books on the wonderfully brilliant Zora Neale Hurston. We look forward to meeting you in person when you come to Philadelphia. And please pick up the book, Barracoon, The Story of the Last Black Cargo. Thank you so much, Deborah Plant, for taking the time out and speaking to me about this wonderful, wonderful book. You're very welcome. The pleasure has been all mine. This was a Flashpoint Extra. Thank you for listening. Flashpoint is KYW Radio's weekly public affairs show. It airs Saturday nights at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KYW News Radio, 1060 AM 
or you can listen via live stream on KYWnewsradio.com. For exclusive content and extras like these, subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, the Radio.com app, or other platforms you use to get your pods. Please follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. My handle is Cherry Greg. And if there's something that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. And we'll make it a show topic. Bring someone on and do an interview. Thanks so much to you, Flashpoint fam, for listening. 